You are listening to the Meaningful Life with George Haas podcast. For more information, please visit metagroup.org. That's M-E-T-T-A-G-R-O-U-P dot O-R-G. The meditation uh, strategies that we're offering to you are based on a Theravada Buddhist practice. So in Theravada Buddhism, the idea is that you make a decision to be a good person. That's the entry into this. I like to talk about it in, in terms of making a decision to abandon the need for revenge, uh, abandon the need for compensation for what's been lost, abandon the need uh, for power. Uh, um, that's what I mean. Make a decision to be a good person. In making a decision to be a good person, you open up the possibility of, of generosity. This is the way in. Um, in generosity, uh, in some sense, in order to give up the need for retribution and for compensation for the previous wrongs in your life, it is in itself an act of generosity that opens you to the possibility of doing that. The real reason that you want to do that is uh, for mo- most of the time, they've already gotten away with it, and you're just using up energy and space in your mind, holding on to something that's already lost. If you don't let go of the thing that's already lost, then there's no space for the stuff that you could have now to come in. And so in some sense, you're giving up the possibility of now in hopes of being compensated for something that's already lost. And so that lack of integration, as Blake said earlier, uh, the coherent narrative that we're looking for uh, is a reflection of that. If you're caught up in things that have already happened and already been lost and you, you aren't willing to integrate the loss or you're unable to integrate the loss, then you're also unwi- unwilling to have a coherent narrative about <coughs> the, the trajectory of your life. You're unwilling, in a way, to make space for the things that can happen now. Uh, If you don't take the things that happen now, then the original wounds, the original losses, are accumulating additional losses of things that you might have uh, had. Things is a term that I would use. Mostly what matters to human beings is connection and and finding meaning in the activity uh, uh, that we choose to engage in. When you find that you're, you're, you're... caught up in these things that are already lost, it, it, it diminishes the opportunity uh, for activities that are meaningful now. And so that, that rolling sense of deprivation just increases as, as time goes on, and, and it can become quite debilitating to have that intensity of, of, of what I like to call the terrible sadness of unresolved loss. Um, it, it also can produce the terrible dread. Uh, a lot of us walk around with a lot of anxiety, which I like to call the terrible dread, which is that we're never going to get that. We're never going to be able to have happiness. We're never going to be able to find meaning. Um, and so a lot of what we're going to be doing is, is um, this uh, philosophical um, Buddhist view of letting things be lost and pushing really hard into the present moment, pushing into uh, uh, 
this um, goodness. Um, it's funny to talk about it in this way because uh, the, uh, the the sort of um, cool indifference that I developed uh, as a young man uh, would be embarrassed by these kinds of uh, conversations. It would be embarrassing, a loss of social status would immediately follow. <laughs> we become generous in, in letting the things that are lost be lost. Um, this does not mean you should remain in relationship with people that are harm, harming you. You should not. Um, but if you don't have the perspective that there will be other opportunities, <coughs> other possibilities for relationships, you won't leave the people that are harming you because it uh, we don't, we can't be alone. <coughs> Human beings are herd animals. We exist in these vast, complex social networks, and we we really need that to thrive. In order to be a good person, to be a generous person, we need to live ethical lives, and so this is another piece that comes in th this process of beginning ethical, uh, an ethical way of being. Um, I tend to be on the atheistic side of, of, of belief, uh, and I don't think that that impedes in any way understanding how, uh, what an ethical life would be, and uh, in, in no way impedes finding the motivation to lead an ethical life. In leading an eth ethical life, it opens up the possibility of living authentically, that you can express authentically who you are. If you're unwilling to express authentically who you are, you won't be seen by other people in a way that's meaningful. You may think that uh, who you are authentically is um, uh, not uh, um, going to be useful to you. I was talking to somebody on the phone and they said, yeah, but if I, I express my authentic self, I'll be boring. And nobody will want me if I'm boring. But actually what you want is somebody who's delighted by you, your boringness, right? That's what we're really looking for. Someone who, who doesn't need you to be entertaining, doesn't need you to do something. That we feel that we need to do something or be something different than who we are in order for somebody to love us or take care of us and uh, means that, that early on, our early conditioning, well, we were not wanted. That's all it means. It doesn't mean that we weren't valuable. It doesn't mean that who we are authentically won't be desirable. It just means that in the conditions that we had early on, that, that who we were wasn't what was wanted. We don't have to give up being who we are authentically in order to, to, to find people who will want us. It, in fact, it's the reverse. We need to be able to reveal to people who we are uh, and, uh, and the people who will, who will want that will be drawn to it. You still have to be really picky. But if you don't tell someone who you really are uh, and instead you, you become who you think that they want and they want that, then you've locked yourself out of the possibility of being authentic. And you won't rely on the person anyway because you, you think if they find you out they'll leave anyway. So that uh, we're really wanting to pay attention to these knots. So 
you make a decision to be a good person, you undertake this process of generosity, of opening to the possibility of uh, abundance, <coughs> might be a way to put it, or, or that there's going to be enough, that there isn't this place of scarcity, and you undertake a, a, an understanding of what it is to be eth an ethical person in the world. Um, in Buddhism, we talk about it in terms of the five precepts, uh, to undertake the practice to refrain from uh, causing harm or by killing, to undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm by taking what, what is not freely offered, by undertaking the practice to refrain from causing harm through sexual expression, to undertake the harm, to, to undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm through uh, speech, and to uh, undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm through imbibing substances that lead to heedlessness, we might also add to that process addiction. And then we begin to take, undertake the practice to see things the way that they are. This is a wonderful place to be. But in order to see things the way that, we, that they are, we need to understand how we experience things, how we sense things, and then how we make them into something. And in that back and forth between this is the sensing experience, <laughs> the, um, one with the door slightly open, it blocks actually my arm from being able to hit the sensors. So somebody over there is going to have to do it. <laughs> it's nice to know that you're all uh, your attention is so wrapped that you're not moving. <laughs> so in meditation practice, what we're, we're beginning to examine is how we sense and then how we make the, the experience we sense into something. So we're getting into the sensing process, uh, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, and in Buddhism, thinking. How do we know what it is? So the mind is very good at pattern recognition. We sense something, we recognize the pattern of that particular experience, and then we have a catalog of, of previous sensing experiences which are then gone through to identify the pattern of experience. And if we've experienced that pattern before, the uh, understanding of what that is is attached to it and that's the thing we make it into. Um, all of the things that we did uh, in response to it and the outcome of all of that also attaches. And one of the ways that we get caught up in conditioning is that we lose sight of the fact that this moment of that pattern happening is this moment and not all the previous moments. And we can easily begin to respond to the present moment as if it were the thing that happened in the past. Are you following me on this? And then all of a sudden we're not in the present moment, we're in the conditioning. And if the conditioning we had wasn't the best conditioning, then we're limiting our, our possibilities for what this moment might bring us based on our conditioned experience of these kinds of moments. Even if it's not the same person, you have an early conditioning response to uh, presenting yourself um, and then you recognize in the pattern of the person in front of you similar aspects that you may have noticed in the past and all of a sudden you're responding to the person in the present moment as if you were 
in the presence of the person from the past. And so we want to really begin to see these things clearly. That's the meditation side of this. To know that this is the sensing experience, this is the thing we've made it into, and what the mind state is that filters the sensing experience in the way that we make it into. From a Western psychology point of view, the development of our responses to uh, what happens to us creates a working model of ourselves, what, what our capabilities are, and a working model of the world. In Buddhism, uh, self is your internal experience and the world is other people. That's what it means. Um, in uh, attachment theory, uh, and I'll go just touch in this I'll go more into depth into to the, uh, the development of attachment, but um, you make up your mind who you are and what you're capable of between three and nine months of age. And you carry that with you for, the, for your whole life unless you intentionally change it or you face some very adverse circumstances that negatively affect you or positively affect you. Um, but what do you remember about the decision process that you went through between three and nine months? Nothing, right? We don't remember that early in life. And how did you make that, that, that decision? Well, you called out to the world, I need something, help! And the world came to you in the, in the form of a caregiver, and they responded to you. And if they responded to you by empathetically connecting to you and understanding in this non-verbal communication what it is that you needed, and then they provided it to you well enough, then you have a sense of, I'm pretty good at this. I call out to the world, and the world comes and gives me what I need. I can take care of myself. I can get my needs met. And the world is a place that will meet my needs. And you take that in deeply. And that becomes your mode of operation. You walk into a room and you think, here is a room full of people who will meet my needs and I'm good at getting them to do it. And off you go. Very different than some other views you might have. A caregiver needs to respond good enough to an infant 30% of the time for that to happen. 30% of the time or more for that to happen. And uh, if that didn't happen, then you're looking at an adverse experience of childhood. Less than 30% of the time are your needs actually being met. Um, and uh, in, in uh, Buddhism, we talk about direct insight and inferential insight. In direct insight, you have the experience, the direct sensing experience, and uh, in inferential insight, if you look at an aspect of the, the experience, uh, and uh, the other elements of the experience must be there. If you zoom out and see the whole picture, and that's something that's happening, uh, but then you zoom in to pull apart each of the individual sensing experience of it, but, and that thing is happening. If you're focused on one aspect of it, you can infer that the other aspects need to be present. Is that making sense? Maybe. 
in meditation, we like in vipassana meditation, we pull things apart to look at the individual strands, and the individual strands are the individual sense gates. So in each moment of experience, there are six sense gates happening: touching, seeing, tasting, smelling, uh, hearing, thinking are all happening in every moment. But you could focus on any any one of those aspects in any moment, just in the seeing of the moment, just in the hearing. But if that thing is happening and you're focusing just on the seeing, you can infer that the other sense gates are active in creating the whole experience. Is that better explained? In attachment, the the conditions that cause attachment responses are so direct based on what happens, you can infer based on how you are now and what your attachment responses are uh, to what must have happened uh, to you as a child prior to remembering. By the time you're three years old, the attachment response is predictably fixed. That is to say that somebody at the, the beginning of their life and at the end of their life, there's a 70% likelihood that your attachment strategy is the same. Does that make sense? You have an 85% chance of having the attachment strategy that your primary caregiver had or has. And the reason for that is that in the moment that the window opens where you need to learn a skill to be uh, in the world, you learn it from the person who's there to teach you and they teach you what they know. They can't teach you something that they don't know. And so most of us have the attachment strategy that our primary caregiver has. So that may be one way to begin to look at it. If you call out to the world and the world doesn't respond to you consistently enough, then you develop a sense that you're not capable of getting your needs met. Uh, and that um, the world is indifferent to meeting your needs. This is an unbearable place uh, for uh, a child to be, so typically children who have that experience suppress all awareness of it. The sadness is too terrible, the rejection is too terrible. And then they go into a place of idealizing that the childhood was, was wonderful, that I have wonderful, I had a wonderful childhood, but in the suppression of the emotion they also suppress memory and they don't remember their childhood. But their view is, I'm brilliant, the problem is not me, the problem is all of the rest of you. That's how, if you encounter an adult that has that, the experience that they had as a child was constant, unrelenting rejection. A child that has inconsistent care, sometimes the care is good, sometimes the care is bad, sometimes uh, the care is, um, sometimes the caregiver is absent, they develop a sense of themselves as being uh, incapable of getting their needs met. But they think that everybody else has got it figured out, so that all they have to do is uh, stay close to somebody and get them to take care of them and, then, and they'll, they'll be okay. 
And then some children uh, have abusive childhoods and, and they develop a sense of, I'm not capable of getting my needs met, but actually to ask for my needs to be met is dangerous, so I simply will be invisible and not ask. And so uh, we want to be able to, to begin to recognize in ourselves what these patterns are like how we really operate uh, and what our conditioning was and what is the result of that conditioning man. Is that making sense without going too deep into it? So we're going to talk about the different kinds of uh, early conditioning and the, the uh, outcomes that that kind of conditioning causes in terms of the view of self and world always back to this self and world. If you can begin to see how those mind states arise, then you can know when they're there and when they're not, and you can begin to investigate the quality of how reality looks through those mind states so that you can begin to move in the direction of secure skills and secure responses. Um, I'm going to describe now the um, <coughs> qualities of secure relationships. The, the, the basis of secure relationships are reliability and mutuality. Um, reliability is necessary because if you don't uh, have somebody to be in relationship to who is reliable or if you are not reliable in relationships a sense of safety doesn't arise in the relationship you don't feel that you can count on somebody who isn't um, who isn't reliable and they don't feel that they can count on you um, if you look at how this happens in small children a secure child uh, when you're born, you probably don't remember this, but when you were born you couldn't even roll yourself over, right? You couldn't sit up. You could wave your arms and legs. You could put your feet in your mouth. Anybody can still do that? <laughs> and then you do thousands of little baby crunches. Have you ever been around a baby? <laughs> And then they roll themselves over and then they do thousands of little baby push-ups <laughs> until they can get up on all four and then they go. They just psh. But in that moment, the child will crawl out about four feet and look around to their caregiver for reassurance that it's okay to keep going. And then they'll crawl to the door and they'll look around for that reassurance and then they'll crawl out of the door and crawl back in and look for that reassurance. But if the caregiver isn't there to reassure them, it also begins to collapse the capacity to explore what's meaningful to the child. And that reliability is the basis of that, that when I look around, the caregiver is there attuning to me, reassuring me that they'll be there when I get back. That's the basis of this reliability. If you don't have that, the, 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 the capacity to explore what's meaningful to you collapses. Mutuality means that 
your needs are taken care of in the relationship and that the other person's needs are taken care of in relationships. So we're talking about adult relationships. Um, not that one person's needs are being taken care of and the other person is caretaking, which can happen quite a bit, or uh, that everybody gets the same. Everybody's needs are different because everybody's conditioning is different. And so uh, what you want to do in a relationship is take care of the other person in a way that's meaningful to them and then and see that they pay attention and take care of you in a way that's meaningful to you. So it's a mutual distribution of the resources of the relationship, even if that's not the same. Some people need more attention than other people do in a relationship. And are you willing to do that reliably for them? If you are, a sense of safety arises in the relationship. If a sense of safety arises in a relationship, you're willing to attune to somebody, attune to them. Now, we're attuned, can you tell? And now, we're attuned, can you tell? And you and I. And everybody here can tell who I'm attuned to at any given moment. We as human beings are highly sensitive to attunement. The early communication, mother to infant or father to infant or whoever it was, is attuning at this intensity, right? At that intensity you can see the fluctuation of the iris of the other person and as an infant you may have learned to decode that fluctuation <coughs> as an indication of how the other person's inner, inner experience of you is. That's the how many people do you allow to get this close to you so that they can see the fluctuation of your irises close enough that they can understand what your internal experience of them is? Friends, we, we tend to keep it about three feet so that they can read the micro-expressions, but it's rare to get them this close. It's almost the most intimate people that we allow close. And then people that we don't feel safe with, we keep at a distance of say eight feet, so that they can't actually read the micro-expressions and decode our internal emotional experience. So out of this attunement, which is this second layer of secure relationships, comes the opportunity to allow somebody to see you. What does it feel like when somebody really sees you? It tends to lead to a sense of being loved, to being understood to be appreciated, to be enjoyed. And what happens when somebody misattunes to you? You feel misunderstood and unloved and unappreciated and unwanted. So the attunement piece is very important. If you had an early caregiving experience where the caregiver you had easily attuned to you, then you have a sense of being valuable, of being loved. And if you had an early experience of a, a caregiver who misattuned to you consistently enough or erratically, then you have a sense of being unlovable, of being unwanted, being misunderstood. So the attunement piece is extraordinarily important. If you feel attuned to and appreciated, it opens the, to the possibility of revealing yourself authentically to the other person. When that happens, then you get into this process of emotionally co-regulating with the other person. 
Are you aware of emotional co-regulation? Are you aware that you're attuned, that an empathetic experience forms between you, and that in that empathetic connection to the other person, you emotionally regulate each other? And if you find somebody who's really good at regulating you, and you also happen to be good at regulating them, then these relationships are extraordinarily valuable because then you can go out and, uh, you know, uh, balls to the wall. Do you know what balls to the wall means? It, it, it comes from the airlines, just so you know. That the, the little balls on the top of the handles that control the throttle of an airplane, when they're pushed all the way forward, they hit the wall of the, the cockpit. <laughs> you can go out into the world and explore and risk because you know that you can come back to somebody and if you get totally knocked sideways they'll be there and they'll help regulate you rebalance you so that you can then go back out and explore and if you don't have somebody that will do that to you the risk of getting so uh, emotionally dysregulated by something that you might discover as you're exploring becomes unbearable and you withdraw from your exploration. That sense of emotional regulation and the capacity to emotionally regulate with someone else opens you up to the, this sense of being delightful to the other person and of them being delightful to you. You see somebody that you know that you can emotionally co-regulate with and you know that you're going to feel terrific after 20 minutes of talking to them. You see them and you light up with delight because you know that the experience of them is going to be so uh, pleasant and, and enjoyable. Um, do you notice when you walk around the planet that you find some people delightful and others you don't so much? <laughs> So we want to begin to pay attention to who delights us. And then we want to develop the skill of being able to uh, demonstrate our, our, our delight in others. It is such a, a, a wonderful experience to be met with delight. Now, if you had good enough caregivers, they would have delighted in you, right? And that would be an aspect of secure attachment. But if you didn't, they may not have delighted in you. And depending on what your attachment mechanism uh, is you may or may not even know what delight is because you were never delighted in or you were you were you were required to perform in order to get someone to delight in you. So if you look at at, uh, at the, the the main attachment strategies, secure people have an easy relationship with delight because that was their experience. Uh, people who grow up to be dismissing adults, and I know I haven't really defined this, and I and I will more, but uh, they're anxious, avoidant children. Their their experience of delight is only comes when they they were in a position of idealizing their caregiver. 
So in order for them to be delighted in, they had to idealize their caregiver, even though they knew that their caregiver wasn't providing good care. So they were in this bind as children of having to say that they got good care when they knew that they weren't. So you can imagine a kind of schism that that would cause in, in that, that dilemma. In uh, an anxious, uh, ambivalent child would be a preoccupied adult. Uh, they needed to present themselves as helpless or they needed to present themselves in a demanding, chaotic anger in order to get care. And neither one of those tends to lend to delight. <laughs> if you have to angrily demand in a chaotic frenzy uh, a plea for, for care, nobody's delighting in that. Right? The tantrum does not tend to produce delight. But if you didn't do it, you didn't get taken care of. I mean, so the bind for that child. And then the child, a uh, fearful avoidant, which is a disorganized uh, a child. In the request for care, you were likely to be abused, so you became invisible. And, and, and invisible people are not delighted in there. They're completely unseen. So that's what happens. The delight opens the possibility. These first four uh, qualities of the... Um, of secure relationships opens up to the possibility of exploration. So the fifth aspect of secure relationships is that that person is your greatest booster in you going out and exploring what's meaningful to you, even if it doesn't offer a direct benefit to them. That they're excited for you to go and have the great meaningful life and they can't wait for you to come back and tell them about your adventure. And, and you, of course, it's mutual so that if they're out exploring, you can't wait to get the update of their story, their adventure. And that's enriching because you don't have to go do their thing because they've given you an intimate explanation of what their exploration was like. And they're delighted to share that. And we learned this as children. Have you ever been around a two-year-old to pick something up in the environment and they come over and they hand it to you? Do you know what I'm talking about? And then what do you do? Do you take it and say, oh yes, this is so interesting. Where did you find it? Do you, do you engage in this exploration with them? And then do you hand it back to them and ask them what else have they found? And if they go off and they come back with something else, do you do the, that again? And if they, do you know how Small children tend to do it 40 times. How many times does it take before you're just fed up and you don't want to do it anymore? <laughs> right? And then you say, can't you see I'm talking to somebody on the phone? <laughs> and what does that mean to the child? That their exploration isn't interesting, that they're not important. That somebody who's not even there is more important than they are. And that they should. Do you take it and put it on a high shelf and then ignore them? What is it that happened to you that would have taught you to do that? And understand that, that, that if you had a caregiver who was patient and willing to go through the 40 renditions of uh, uh, exploration, uh, that you would have understood 
that your exploration is vitally important and that somebody is going to be interested in you telling them about it. And if you didn't have that experience, then you will understand exploration differently than that. You may um, be a good explorer, but a solo explorer, and it may never occur to you that somebody would be interested in your exploration because nobody ever was when you were young. Um, you may be too afraid to leave your caregiver to explore at all, and so you don't really explore. You just tag along with somebody else when, when they explore. You may uh, explore, um, but then get so frightened by the activity of exploring and not have anybody to help you re-regulate so that your exploration is very sporadic.